John 16 and then page 74 in the back of the blue hymnal. We'll read Article 11 together um, after we read the scripture. Thank Reverend Blau for his wonderful message last Sunday evening. Um, it's always good to be reminded of uh, the, the capable uh, hands and giving it into capable hands to minister the word. And, and that was a wonderful meditation on Psalm 131. So thanks, Reverend Blau, for that. John 16 will begin the second sentence of verse 4. And we'll read through verse 15. God's word given to us. Let's attend to its reading. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, and righteousness, and judgment, in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. Grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. And if you could, uh, turn your attention here to the, the blue hymnal, page 74, in, in the back. And we'll read article 11 together. <clears throat> it's the article, considering the deity of the Holy Spirit, we'll begin with, we believe. We believe and confess also that the Holy Spirit from eternity proceeds from the Father and the Son, and therefore neither is made, created, nor begotten, but only proceeds from both, who in order is the third person of the Holy Trinity, of one and the same essence, majesty, and glory with the Father and the Son. And therefore is the true and eternal God, as the Holy Scriptures teach us. Amen. We'll focus mainly uh, up through verse 11, but wanted to to read through verse 15. uh, Just to highlight a few things there, what Jesus is saying at the end regarding the Holy Spirit. And and what he's saying there... um, and really in this, this whole passage, this whole discourse, but the end of the passage really brings it into sharp focus that what the Holy Spirit is doing is carrying on the work of Christ on earth, that 
he's taking from what Jesus has accomplished and he's bringing it to the hearts of men. He's applying it. He's applying the benefits that Christ wins for us in redemption. And so just as we see Jesus submit to the will of the Father, so we see the Holy Spirit stay within the context of Christ's work and bring that work to bear on uh, the men and women of this world. That's important to keep in mind as you consider the Holy Spirit, because a lot of ideas about the Holy Spirit today, and we need to understand that just as uh, Jesus submits to the Father, so the Holy Spirit submits to the will of God, the eternal will of God, carries it out through the power of the Word, and through the power of the session of Jesus in heaven, who reigns at the right hand of the Father. It's important to keep all of that in mind, particularly as we consider this question of the divinity of the Holy Spirit, that he is true God, just as Jesus Christ is, just as God the Father is. And so before uh, we unpack the passage tonight, just want to have sort of three, uh, three points to consider for us. Uh, regarding the deity of the Holy Spirit. The first is the problem of this question, then the personality of the Holy Spirit, and then the power. So problem, personality, and power. This is uh, somewhat of a difficult issue to tackle in regards to Scripture and in the history of the church. Uh, How do you define the deity of the Holy Spirit particularly as you consider the deity of Christ. And we think of all of the arguments that we have for the deity of Christ, the the evidences for it. The Holy Spirit is a little bit of a different issue. Why? Well, probably mainly because there is less discussion of the deity of the Holy Spirit explicitly in the pages of Scripture than there is with Jesus Christ. Another reason... Uh, is that this is something that is abundantly obvious to faithful Christians and those who experience the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives, but something that is far less obvious to those who do not have the experiential presence of the Holy Spirit. So those who walk with the Lord, those who look to Christ and trust in Him, see the authority of His Scriptures in their lives, this is something that's very obvious to us, that yes, it makes perfect sense that the Holy Spirit would be the third person of the Holy Trinity. But to assert such a thing in uh, discourse and argument is a little bit different and a little bit more difficult. Calvin himself noted this problem. He recognizes that uh, not only is, is that issue with the Holy Spirit a problem, but he recognizes the inability that we have, excuse me, as human beings, to fully comprehend the Trinity. It's one of those things that we we try to approach as best we can, but we'll never fully grasp it. He says this, I'll quote him uh, a bit at length. He says, We confess that we believe the Holy Spirit to be true God with the Father and the Son, the third person of the Trinity, consubstantial and co-eternal with the Father and the Son, omnipotent, the creator of all things, There are three distinct persons and one essence, which, since they are exalted and profound mysteries, ought better to be adored 
than investigated. For they neither ought nor can be ascertained, either by the small measures of our imaginations or by the reckonings of our tongues. He says they are better adored than investigated. Calvin places worship above investigation. This does not mean that he negates seeking out truth, and that's really important to notice, right? Because some people may take a, a statement like that and run with it. It means that you don't investigate at all. It means that you don't search out the scriptures. Calvin says, if God is creator, if he's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, if he's all of those things, he's better to be adored than investigated. We'll never uh, comprehend him in the sense that we look at his truth from all sides and fully grasp it and fully take it in. That's not what we do. We cannot fully comprehend God. God knows himself better than we will ever know him. And so with that, we first adore God. We adore him in a way that seeks further understanding, understanding that our worship of him is one of the the ways that we learn about him. But we do understand and notice and confess uh, that he is, in certain ways, unapproachable and a mystery to us. For that reason, uh, the theologians of the past, particularly the Reformed thinkers, have been notably brief in their discussion of the deity of the Holy Spirit. And uh, their position was always to be utterly faithful to the traditional language that we find in the ancient creeds, particularly the language in the Nicene and the Athanasian creeds. That in itself is telling because of who the Spirit is and what the Spirit does. The Spirit is the dynamic power of all of the works of God, but we can't reduce Him to being just a power or a force. He is a person. He he is a person of the Trinity, and we need to keep that in mind. And so with all of that being said, how we answer this issue, if you will, is that we say that yes, the Holy Spirit may not have been, his, his deity, his divinity may not have been as explicitly laid out in scripture, but that's because of the nature of who he is, that he is that dynamic power of all of the works of God. And when he is not talked about, he is present. He is present everywhere. Everywhere in scripture, in all of the works of God, there we find the spirit if we are paying attention It's not noticeable to perhaps the untrained eye or perhaps the the unregenerate eye. But for those who know God, who know his Christ, and who know the Spirit, we begin to see how central the Holy Spirit is to all of God's actions. So this problem is not a problem at all. We see that uh, on the surface what seems like the absence of the Spirit is that he is present everywhere because of who he is. He's the dynamic power of all of God's actions. And he, and, uh, he is the one who makes effectual all of God's outward actions. So, then the personality of the Spirit. I mentioned that it's important to avoid thinking about the Holy Spirit as just a force, just a power. But we need to also remember that He is a person. We see this even from the very beginning of Scripture. When God creates all things, all things visible and invisible, we see even there, the the first verses of Genesis, that the Spirit of God 
is doing something. He's hovering over the face of the deep. The Hebrew word for spirit is also the word for wind or breath. And that describes for us the nature of the spirit of God. The way that we are to think of him as moving. As being able to move as a spirit. So God manifests himself there at the beginning. And it shows the centrality of the spirit in the creation of all things. Psalm 33 is taken as one of the the clearest representations of the deity of the Holy Spirit. It says this, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And that's, of course, fulfilled as we see in the New Testament. Colossians says that by Christ, all things were made. Christ, who is the word of God. So by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, or by the spirit of his mouth, all of their hosts. So Psalm 33 is telling us, if we look at it through the lens of all of Scripture, that God creates all things in the Son, in Christ, and by the power of the Spirit. And that's the way that we are really to think about all of the works of God. We see God the Father as the one who uh, all things proceed from Him, uh, that all things go out to to fulfill His will, and all things happen uh, from the Father, in the Son, by the Holy Spirit. And so Psalm 33 affirms that for us in regards to uh, the creation. Jesus also shows us that we cannot think of the Holy Spirit as just a force, but as a person. Uh, in the baptismal formula of the Great Commission, baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we need to be careful to avoid um, thinking about the Spirit in those ways and make sure that we assert that He is a person. And then finally, the power. The power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, The beauty of this passage, this discourse that that, that Jesus has in John, in in later later chapters in John, is He talks about the benefits of the Holy Spirit, whom He will send. But uh, one thing that's important to remember that highlights for us the power of the Holy Spirit is before Jesus ascends on high and sends us the Holy Spirit, before he ascends and gives us the Spirit, the Spirit gave us Jesus. The Holy Spirit gave us Jesus before Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. The angel comes to Mary and says that what is conceived in you is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gives Jesus to the world. Furthermore, in order for Jesus to ascend to heaven as the righteous one, in order for him to fulfill all righteousness and to live perfectly in accord with the will of God, what did he need? He needed the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Remember in John chapter 3, Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he says that the Spirit has been given to various people throughout the history of God's redemption. But for the Messiah, he gives the Spirit without measure. Jesus received the Holy Spirit without measure. And so we see him doing various things in the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who allows Jesus to fulfill all righteousness. And there's mystery to that because, of course, we know that Jesus is divine himself. So we're not saying that he has an inability that's likened to a regular human inability, but rather that the Father gives him the Spirit without measure uh, to allow him to fulfill all righteousness and to walk in accordance with all that God had commanded 
uh, him to do. And that reminds us and shows us the power of the Spirit. It also shows us the ways in which all three persons of the Trinity are always working together to bring about all of the things that they give to us in salvation. And so we see uh, the power of the Holy Spirit in all of those things. So we look then at John chapter 16, and Jesus begins by speaking of his departure. He says this, this leading us to this very uh, mysterious statement that he makes when he says, it is better that I depart. Jesus says that he is going to leave them, so he's making sure that they will be prepared for when he is gone. He will never be able to fully prepare them for what's about to happen, will he? Because in their carnal minds, the disciples are yet unable to understand what it is that Jesus is doing. The cross, as a way to glory, was completely inconceivable to the disciples. Nevertheless, they will one day remember all of these things that Jesus says, which is wonderfully confirmed for us in the Gospel of John itself, that the Spirit brings to John the remembrance of all of these things. But Jesus is preparing them for when he is gone. To show that they really have not grasped the scope of what Jesus is doing, Jesus says that none of them have asked him, where are you going? This has puzzled students of Scripture. Because in both chapters 13 and 14, Peter and Thomas have both asked questions that seem to be exactly what Jesus says they have not asked. Peter says, Lord, where are you going? When Jesus begins this, or introduces them to this idea that he is leaving. Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And then in chapter 14, Thomas says, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So how do we answer this? Why does Jesus say you are not asking this when it seems like Peter and Thomas have asked this? You might put it this way, and this, uh, of course, is not myself speaking from experience at all, uh, but imagine with me um, a situation in a household. So uh, a husband has made plans to leave the house and to go and do something without telling the woman that he loves. And as he is walking out the door, he hears from behind him a rather sharp comment coming from back in the house Where are you going? Now, we ask ourselves, is the one who asks the question as concerned with where he is going as she is with the fact that he is leaving it all? The point of the question is is more of an accusation, isn't it? How can you possibly think that you can leave right now? How can you possibly think that you are able to leave? That's the problem with the disciples' questions. The questions of Peter and Thomas. See, they're more concerned, they're accusing Jesus that he should not be worried about leaving. He has all kinds of things that he has to do. He has to go to Jerusalem. He has to go and uh, take over Israel. He has to restore the kingdom of God. And so when Jesus says, you have not asked where I am going, what he's saying is that uh, they are not truly concerned with where he might end up, with what his destination is. By the way, ladies, just so you know, I'm not saying that that men are always leaving the house with as pure motives as Jesus here. That's not what I'm saying. 
Jesus is saying, you are not really concerned with the fact that I am going somewhere that's of benefit to you. Because it's inconceivable in your mind that 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 actually could be of benefit to you for me to leave. So their questions have been more of an accusation. In uh, verse 7, Jesus explains why it is better that he departs. He uses a strong phrase to catch their attention. He says, I tell you the truth. That's the, the modern equivalent of someone saying, to say, someone saying today, I want you to be very careful to pay attention to what I'm saying. Listen, listen to me. That's what Jesus is saying. So he says that it is better that he departs. For if he does not depart, the counselor will not come. In the minds of the disciples, probably two things popped into their heads. Why is it better? And how would it be better? There are two things that highlight um, to show that, that it is indeed better that Jesus departs so that the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, may come. The first is the fullness of salvation, and the second is the fullness of God's blessing. So first, the fullness of salvation. The Old Testament envisions God's kingdom coming, and when God's kingdom comes, what accompanies that is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Joel chapter 2, probably the most famous place in the Old Testament where this is taught to us. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. The Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Peter remembers this text on the day of Pentecost, doesn't he? And he says that it is being fulfilled right in their midst. What it means is that ultimate salvation has come. Salvation has come that was promised even from the Garden of Eden. But that day could not come until Jesus had died and risen again and ascended into heaven. Because the Spirit was not able to come until it was able to apply the redemption that Jesus had won to our hearts. The redemption that Jesus himself purchased. And that's why we must keep the ascension as a really important and central piece of the story of redemption. Where Jesus ascends on high and uh, he ascends on high to the right hand of the Father and then he becomes the, the divine giver of all good things, the giver of all good gifts who pours out his spirit upon his people, who gives them exactly uh, what they need. And so that becomes the second point, that not only a fullness of salvation, salvation accomplished, but a fullness of blessing, salvation applied, a fuller realization of all the good things that God can give to his people in and through the Holy Spirit. We first realize this in relation uh, to the Spirit, because as the Spirit whose ministry is not attached to human flesh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit can carry the blessings of salvation throughout all of the earth. The Spirit can go with the twelve apostles to proclaim the gospel and to spread the good news. And they can go in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in that sense, it is better that Jesus sends the Spirit. But not only that, it's not only better that the Spirit is given, but it's better that Jesus is in heaven. It's better that Jesus is in heaven. Why? Why? Because he represents us before the Father. 
he becomes our advocate in heaven. Now, having an advocate is a wonderful thing, isn't it? Someone who speaks for you. Someone who defends you. Someone who speaks for uh, the good in you. Vouches for you. One of the things we need to understand and realize is that's what Jesus is for us in heaven. Heaven, the place where ultimate reality exists and dwells. The place where the eternal is determined. And to have an advocate in heaven is of of such benefit to us, it becomes abundantly clear why Jesus says, it is better that I depart. It is better that I go to heaven. It's for this reason that the book of Hebrews makes a couple of different points regarding our comfort that we find in Christ because of his ascension into heaven. Hebrews chapter 7. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We would go on to read in Hebrews chapter 10. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. That's a new covenant promise from the Old Testament. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. See, without Jesus going to heaven... We don't have that promise that he has entered into the true temple in heaven through the new and living way, through his flesh, through the righteousness of his life. He enters through that living way and because of that we are to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The Holy Spirit leads us into those truths. The Holy Spirit opens up all of those truths to our minds, to our hearts, to our souls. But meanwhile, it is Jesus who stands as our advocate in heaven, who has done all of these things for us, to go into that place where we never could have gone ourselves. And not only that, but as he enters through that, and as we are united to him and found to be in him, This astounding truth that we can have confidence to enter the heavenly heavenly places, the holy of holies. That we can draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. And so, it is better to have the Holy Spirit with us. It is also better that we have Jesus in heaven. And so this is probably our biggest point of application tonight for ourselves. Perhaps you've heard somebody say, oh, uh, my faith would be so much stronger if I would have been with Jesus in Galilee, Samaria, Jerusalem. If I would have been walking around, following Jesus, seeing all of the, the wonders, the signs that he did, hearing his teaching, my faith would be strong, so much stronger. If that's in your heart, in your mind, please hear the words of Jesus here. That is truly better that he is in heaven, that he has sent his spirit to us. And that's another 
stunning affirmation of the deity of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? For if Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit were not, how could Jesus say that it would be better that I depart and that I send you the Counselor? Because it it would always be better to have God at your side and to have Him be concerned about you and to have Him be there for you. He says, it's better that I depart and go to heaven. I'll send the Holy Spirit. He shows us the deity of this third person of the Trinity who carries out the mission of our great God. That is why it is such a comfort for us to have the Spirit with us and to have Jesus in heaven because we know that we will have missteps. We, we know that we will not ever be perfect. We will never be completely perfect. But so long as we live by faith, so long as we live trusting in Christ who enters the Holy of Holies, so long as we trust in Him and we look to Him in faith, we can have confidence and assurance uh, that God will uh, regard us as holy in and through our Savior. And so it is better for us now than even for those who walked with Jesus. It's better for us. For we have the Holy Spirit with us. And we have Jesus in his flesh in heaven. So then, just as we close, just a, a couple of quick comments on what uh, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do in terms of conviction. Conviction. He says that the, the Spirit will come and will convict. There are probably at least two main meanings of this word Convict. You convict as a, a prosecutor, someone who's trying to prove the guilt of someone else, or convict in terms of personal en- enlightenment, bringing uh, new knowledge to someone, showing them the truth of something. It's that latter meaning that Jesus means here, right? Because if Jesus is our advocate in heaven, those who trust in him, then the Spirit is not going to come as a prosecutor. Uh, to those to whom he is given. So he convicts in the sense of bringing things to light, bringing things uh, to knowledge. And he's doing that so that he combats the ruler of this world, as Jesus says, the devil, the one who operates with nothing but lies. And so he says that the Spirit will convict in, in terms of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit will convict in regard to sin because men do not believe in Him. In their not believing in Jesus, those who reject Him show that they do not have the life that comes in Him. They show that they are not even aware that they need the life that is in Him. This is one of the, the, perhaps the most common problems that plagues people. We talked about it a bit today. Just the unwillingness to see our sinfulness. The unwilling to see our culpability in terms of the evil of this world. I was reading a, a book this week where someone was relaying a conversation that he had on an airplane. Was trying to make it an evangelistic conversation. This person was just going on and on and on about the evil in the world. I can't believe in God because of all the evil. I look around and, and I see all of these evil things, these bad things happening. And I, I, can't, I can't believe in a God like that. And this person responded to them saying, you seem very concerned with the evil in the world. You don't seem as concerned with the evil in your own heart. And there was a 
editorial in a newspaper back in the mid-20th century, and it was entitled, What is Wrong with the World? And a great Christian thinker, G.K. Chesterton, wrote a letter to the editor in response, and he, he penned a very short response. He said, in regards to what is wrong with the world, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. And so, the Holy Spirit comes to show us that we are sinful and we are in desperate need of a Savior. Secondly, he convicts in regards to righteousness. Uh, he, will regard, he will convict the world in terms of righteousness because he is going to the Father. What does this mean? Well, when Jesus was on earth, he showed the world what true righteousness was. He showed the world what true holiness was and obedience to God. But when he ascends, that light of righteousness is gone. And so the Holy Spirit works to still bring to light the knowledge of the truth that all of our righteous deeds, as they are piled up in front of a holy God, they are, as Isaiah 64 says, filthy rags. That human righteousness is nothing compared to the righteousness and the holiness of God. And that's another uh, point that we need to understand and, and internalize for ourselves because we see that as the Spirit convicts us of the, the, the ways in which we lack righteousness, the Spirit also produces in us a righteousness that is put on display for the world to see. That as the people of Jesus Christ, as those who follow Him, we become those who are most marked, who are most like Him, because we have His Spirit dwelling inside of us, producing in us a Christ-likeness that must be noticed by the world. I was speaking with a, a young man last week who became a Christian in his 20s, and he said that, uh, that he despised God his whole life. And he, there was a pastor who just kept pouring his heart and his life into this young man. And he got to the point where he said there, that there has to be a God. You know, I said he despised God. Really what it was is he denied God's existence. And he got to the point where he saw the love of this pastor that kept investing in him and was always there for him and kept loving him. And he said, there has to be a God. There has to be. Because of the way this man, uh, this man has loved me and the way that this man has continued to share the love of his God with me. And so that becomes the, the, the reminder for us that the Spirit is going to produce in us a righteousness that's on display for the world to see. And then finally... Uh, the truth, uh, he convicts, the spirit convicts in regards to judgment because the ruler of this world stands condemned. What does he do? He shows the truth of the gospel. He shows how the judgment of this, of this world was wrong and morally perverse because the righteous one was placed in their midst and they crucified him. They rejected him. And so the spirit works to bring to light the gospel in dead hearts to show them that the judgment the world made was wrong in regards to Jesus. They killed the Son of God, the righteous one, the one who, was, who answered every question we had, the one who, who, who fulfilled every longing of our hearts. For this reason, Jesus says to us, affirms for us very clearly, the Holy Spirit is divine, the third person of the Trinity. It's better that Jesus ascend into heaven so that he might send us this Spirit, who would abide with us, who would lead us into all truth, who would convict, bring about new knowledge in us and through us, through the power of the word of God. 
and that he might abide with us to comfort us, to remind us uh, that our Savior has made a new and a living way into the Holy of Holies. So trust in all of those things. Uh, make sh- uh, be, be certain that because of the Spirit, God is doing something wonderful in the people of God and in this world through the church, that he would glorify his name and uh, that Christ would be exalted. Look forward to the day when he truly is and every knee bows and tongue confesses that he is Lord. Let's pray. And so, Father, we give you all the praise and the glory. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for his ascension, for sending the Spirit to us. And, Father, we pray that we would live in light of the power of the Spirit and that he would continue his work of conviction in bringing people to repentance in continuing to form us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And we pray that, we would, that you would do so in us by the power of the Spirit even this week. Father, that we would live for you and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.